Okay. Let's do a nice test here. I want to see. I'm going to give a really quick um, Bhagavatam class here. I'm just going to read through chapter 21 of the third canto of the Srimad Bhagavatam. And this is Srila Prabhupada's translation. And I'm just going to go through the texts. And there are 56 verses here. I hope to read through all of them if they are, how you say, all relevant, interrelevant. So here we go. This is the Srimad Bhagavatam, which is the, I guess you could translate it as the about, all, the all about God. And so they don't call it a book. It's the all about God. Srimad Bhagavatam. And then I'm sure Sanskrit scholars could translate it better than I could. But that's my basic understanding of what the Srimad Bhagavatam means. And if we were to translate into modern vernacular, it would mean the story of God. Meaning like the God as he's appeared in the world over billions upon billions upon billions upon trillions of years. So this is a long story. And then as you get into the third canto, which is kind of like a volume, they begin to talk about, uh, well, they go back and forth. They go back and forth from old, old times to more modern times. And in the modern times of the Srimad Bhagavatam's recent installation, going back, I mean, you know, 1500 years, 2000, 5000 years, some of these pieces. This is right after Krishna left the world. And the sages who all saw this, who have contributed the majority of what we know as Vedic literature, and what we have based everything that we call, you know, you know, religious ancient India and South Asia, you could say, not just India, it's all over the place, maybe even more. These, these are, whoa, whoa, I got lost there. Well, anyway, point is, around 5,000 years ago, these, this last installation of the Bhagavatam is where the sages all get together and they're like, hey, let's, uh, let's all debrief here. It's a debrief. In a sense, the Bhagavatam's recent installation, like many of these installations, possibly, is like a debrief. Did we all just see that? Let's just be very clear on what we just saw. So you can consolidate and crystallize a lot of this beautiful information that we all experience. A lot of these beautiful experiences that we were all part of. So, around that time, there's a big battle. Those of you who know about this, this is the, the, it's a great war in South Asia where you have many factions who are ruling over the world at this point, essentially, and they start fighting. And since they're fighting and they rule over the whole world, the whole world is kind of fighting. It's a little bit like a world war. And then after this world war, Everybody's suffering, many people have died. There's a lot of 
sadness in the world and a lot of people aren't feeling that good. And the two armies can be, the two armies that fought with each other, they can be reduced back to two, two different sides of a family. These two cousins that end up fighting. And these two groups of cousins that end up fighting, they end up killing all a whole bunch of people just because they're fighting. And after it's all over, people on both sides aren't very happy and they're going about their life in the way you would after something horrible happens. And for the elderly who are not really at all involved in the world that much anymore, this is their cue to just go off and live in the wilderness and meditate for the rest of their life as they did back then. So one of the people on one of the armies is a, name, is a man named Vidura. And Vidura, he is the uncle of one of the cousins, one of the groups of cousins who ended up fighting in this war. Vidura is very sad about the whole thing. He wanted to somehow be part of, of uh, avoiding the conflict, of preventing the conflict. And while he avoided it himself, he was not able to prevent it. And even Krishna and other, other people, they tried to prevent the war, but they couldn't. And the war happened. And after the war, Vidura is very sad, like many others, and he decides to go off and meditate. And in his travels up in the mountains, he meets a very, very famous sage. And so this sage is named Maitreya Muni. And everybody who knows about the Vedas knows about Maitreya Muni. And very few people in the time of Vidura have even seen Maitreya Muni because he's really old and he's way up there in the mountains meditating somewhere and who knows where he is. But Vidura being such a magnanimous and unique special soul here on this planet, he's the kind of person that if you send him up in there, he'll probably find Maitreya. And sure enough, they meet and they have a conversation. And Vidura, of course, is overwhelmed with grief and Maitreya tells him different answers questions for him and basically gives him some instruction. And so in this conversation, he starts to tell him about a story which happened a long time ago. And this is how these cantos kind of work because then though we move to the present, we have a story that's kind of following the past story being told to Vidura. So we can see that maybe before this we were talking about something old, but it's all in the context of people in the modern age telling these stories to each other. So Maitreya Muni, this ancient sage, even 5,000 years ago, he was very ancient, and Vidura are speaking. And so Maitreya Muni is discussing with Vidura about a person named Manu. And Manu is a person who presides over inhabiting the world with people. And you could say the world referring to all earthly planets, or you could say maybe just this planet. But the Manu of, of a given age lasts a long, long, long time. 
he lives for millions of years and then passes the torch on to another man. Vidura is hearing about Swayambhuvamanu, who is, in, in a sense, as the cycle repeats itself over and over, it begins with Swayambhuvamanu. And so Swayambhuvamanu is like a, the name of a post. It's not necessarily the name of this individual. This individual might have had an, a name that his loved ones called him that we don't know. But Swayambhuvamanu is how we will refer to him. And Swayambhuvamanu, being the first one that's going to populate these planets, has to come up with a way of doing it. And so he has himself many children. Well, he doesn't have many children. But he has children, and then he tries to get his children and other people who he knows about to try to, to populate these planets. And so, there he has a daughter, and he wants his daughter to marry this great sage. Well, he doesn't want his daughter to marry the great sage. He, he wants his daughter to marry a, a great sage and to have wonderful children. And he is indicated towards this individual named Kardamamuni. And so, finally, Kardamamuni and Swayambhuvamanu are given audience to speak with each other. And here we are at the conversation between Manu and Kardamamuni. And so, Vidura again, the uncle of the Pandavas, one of the groups of cousins who ended up involving the world in some huge world war, he's asking Maitreya questions. And Maitreya is answering. And so, here we go. This is chapter 21 of Srimad Bhagavatam, third canto, the status quo. And I will do three mantras as invocations for reading this literature. Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya. Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya. Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya. And here we go. Text number one. Vidura said, The line of Swayambhuvamanu was most esteemed, a worshipful sage. I beg you, give me an account of this race whose progeny multiplied through sexual intercourse. The two great sons of Swayambhuvamanu, Priyavrata and Uttanapada, ruled the world, consisting of seven islands, just according to religious principles. O holy Brahmana, O sinless one, you have spoken of his daughter, known by the name Devahuti, as the wife of the sage Kardama, the lord of created beings. How many offspring did that great yogi beget through the princess, who was endowed with eightfold perfection in the yoga principles? O pray, tell me this, for I am eager to hear it. O holy sage, Tell me of how the worshipful Ruchi and Daksha, the son of Brahma, generated children after securing as their wives the other two daughters of Swayambhuvamanu. The great sage Maitreya replied, Commanded by Lord Brahma to beget children in the worlds, the worshipful Kardamamuni practiced penance on the bank of the river Saraswati for a period of 10,000 years. During that period of penance, the sage Kardama 
by worship through devotional service and trance propitiated the personality of Godhead, who is the quick bestower of all blessings upon those who flee to him for perfection. Then in the Satya Yuga, the lotus-eyed supreme person being pleased show himself to that Kardama Muni and displayed his transcendental form, which can be understood only through the Vedas. Kardama Muni saw the supreme person who is free from material contamination in his internal form, effulgent like the sun, wearing a garland of white lotuses and water lilies. The Lord was clad in spotless yellow silk, and his lotus face was fringed with slick, dark locks of curly hair. Adorned with a crown and earrings, he held his characteristic conch, disc, and mace in three of his hands, and a white lily in the fourth. He glanced about in a happy, smiling mood, whose sight captivates the hearts of all devotees. A golden streak in his chest, the famous Kostubha gem suspended from his neck, he stood in the air with his lotus feet placed on the shoulders of Garuda. Garuda is Vishnu's massive bird who flies him around, looks like an eagle. <coughs> when Kardama Muni actually realized the Supreme Person in person, he was greatly satisfied because his transcendental desire was fulfilled. He fell on the ground with his head bowed to offer obeisances unto the lotus feet of the Lord. His heart naturally full of love of God, with folded hands, he satisfied the Lord with prayers. The great sage Kardama said, O supreme, worshipful Lord, my power of sight is now fulfilled, having attained the greatest perfection of the sight of you, who are the reservoir of all existences. Through many successive bursts of deep meditation, advanced yogis aspire to see your transcendental form. Your lotus feet are the true vessel to take one across the ocean of mundane nations. Only persons deprived of their intelligence by the spell of the deluding energy will worship those feet with a view to attain the trivial and momentary pleasures of the senses, which even persons rotting in hell can attain. However, O oh my Lord, you are so kind that you bestow mercy even upon them. Therefore, desiring to marry a girl of like disposition, who may prove to be a veritable cow of plenty in my married life, to satisfy my lustful desire, I too have sought the shelter of your lotus feet, which are the source of everything. For you are like a you are like a desire tree. O oh my Lord, you are the master and leader of all living entities. Under your direction, all conditioned souls, as if bound by rope are constantly engaged in satisfying their desires. Following them, O embodiment of religion, I also bear oblations for you, who are eternal time. However, persons who have given up stereotyped worldly affairs and the beastly followers of these affairs, and who have taken shelter of the umbrella of your lotus feet by drinking the intoxicating nectar of your qualities and activities in discussions with one another, can be freed from the primary necessities of the material body. Your wheel, which has three knaves, rotates around the axis of the imperishable Brahman. It has 13 spokes, 360 joints, six rims and numberless leaves carved upon it. Though its revolution cuts short the lifespan of the entire creation, this wheel of tremendous velocity cannot touch the lifespan of the devotees of the Lord. My dear Lord, you alone create the universes, O Supreme Person. 
Desiring to create these universes, you create them, maintain them, and again wind them up by your own energies, which are under the control of your second energy called Yoga Maya. Just as a spider creates a cow web by its own energy and again winds it up. My dear Lord, although it is not your desire, you manifest this creation of gross and subtle elements just for our sensual satisfaction. Let your causeless mercy be upon us, for you have appeared before us in your eternal form, adorned with a splendid wreath of tulasi leaves. I continuously offer my respectful obeisances unto your lotus feet, of which it is worthy to take shelter, because you shower all benedictions on the insignificant. To give all living entities detachment from fruitive activity by realizing you, you have expanded these material worlds by your own energy. My trade resumed. Sincerely extolled by these words, Lord Vishnu, shining very beautifully in the shoulders of Garuda, replied with the words as sweet as nectar. His eyebrows moved gracefully as he looked at the sage with a smile full of affection. The Supreme Lord said, Having come to know what was in your mind, I have already arranged for that for which you have worshipped me well through your mental and sensory discipline. The Lord continued, My dear Rishi, O leader of the living entities, for those who serve me in devotion by worshipping me, especially persons like you, who have given up everything unto me, there is never any question of frustration. The Emperor Swayambhuvamanu, the son of Lord Brahma, who is well known for his righteous acts, has his seat in Brahmavarta and rules over the earth with its seven oceans. The day after tomorrow, O Brahmana, that celebrated emperor, who is expert in religious activities, will come here with his queen, Shatarupa, wishing to seek you, wishing to see you. He has a grown-up daughter whose eyes are black. She is ready for marriage, and she has good character and all good qualities. She is also searching for a good husband. My dear sir, her parents will come to see you, who are exactly suitable for her, just to deliver their daughter as your wife. That princess, O holy sage, will be just the type you have been thinking of in your heart for all these long years. She will soon be yours and will serve you to your heart's content. She will bring forth nine daughters from the seeds sown in her by you, and through the daughters you beget, the sages will duly beget children. With your heart cleansed by properly carrying out my command, resigning to me the fruits of all your acts, you will finally attain to me. Showing compassion to all living entities, you will attain self-realization. Giving assurance of safety to all, you will perceive your own self as well as all the universes in me and myself in you. O oh, great sage, I shall manifest my own plenary portion through your wife, Devahuti, along with your nine daughters, and I shall instruct her in the system of philosophy that deals with the ultimate principles of categories. Maitreya went on, Thus having spoken to Kardama Muni, the Lord, who revealed himself only when the senses are in Krishna consciousness, departed from that lake called Bindu Sarova, which was encircled by the river Saraswati. While the sage stood looking on, the Lord left by the pathway leading to Vaikuntha, a path extolled by all great liberated souls. 
The sage stood listening as the hymns forming the basis of the Samaveda were vibrated by the flapping wings of the Lord's carrier, Garuda. Then, after the departure of the Lord, the worshipful sage, Kardama, stayed on the bank of Bindu Sarovara, awaiting the time of which the Lord had spoken. Swayambhuvamanu, with his wife, mounted his chariot, which was decorated with golden ornaments, placing his daughter on it with them. He began traveling all over the earth. O Vidura, they reached the hermitage of the sage, who had just completed his vows of austerity on the very day foretold by the Lord. The holy lake Bindu Sarova, the holy lake Bindu Sarova, flooded by the waters of the river Saraswati, was resorted to by hosts of eminent sages. Its holy water was not only auspicious, but as sweet as nectar. It was called Bindu Sarova because drops of tears had fallen from the eyes of the Lord, who was overwhelmed by extreme compassion for the sage who had sought his protection. The shore of the lake was surrounded by clusters of pious trees and creepers, rich in fruits and flowers of all seasons that afforded shelter to pious animals and birds which uttered various cries. It was adorned by the beauty of groves of forest trees. The areas resounded with the notes of overjoyed birds. Intoxicated bees wandered there, intoxicated peacocks proudly danced, and merry cuckoos called one another. Lake Bindusarova was adorned by flowering trees such as Kadamba, Champaka, Ashoka, Karanja, Bakula, Ashana, Kunda, Mandara, Kutaja, and young mango trees. The air was filled with pleasing notes of Karandava ducks, plavas, swans, ospreys, waterfowl, cranes, chakravakas, and chakras. Its shores abounded with deer, boars, porcupines, gavayas, elephants, baboons, lions, monkeys, mongooses, and monks, deer. Entering that most sacred spot with his daughter and going near the sage, the first monarch, Swayambhuvamanu, saw the sage sitting in his hermitage, having just propitiated the sacred fire by pouring oblations into it. His body shone most brightly, his body shone most brilliantly, though he had engaged in austere penance for a long time. He was not emaciated, for the Lord had cast his affectionate sidelong glance upon him, and he had also heard the nectar flowing from the moonlike words of the Lord. The sage was tall, his eyes were large, like the petals of a lotus. He had matted locks on his head. He was clad in rags. Swayambhuvamana approached and saw him to be somewhat soiled, like an unpolished gem. Seeing that the monarch had come to his hermitage and was bowing before him, the sage greeted him with benediction and received him with due honor. After receiving the sage's attention, the king sat down and was silent. Recalling the instructions of the Lord, Kardama then spoke to the king as follows, delighting him with his sweet accents. The tour you have undertaken, O Lord, is surely intended to protect the virtuous and kill the demons, since you embody the protecting energy of Shidihari. When necessary, you assume the part of the sun god, the moon god, Agni, the god of fire, Indra, the lord of paradise, Vayu, the wind god, Yama, the god of punishment, Dharma, the god of piety, and Varuna, the god presiding over the waters. All the basis to you, who are none other than Lord Vishnu. 
If you did not mount your victorious jeweled chariot, whose mere presence threatens culprits, if you did not produce fierce sounds by the twanging of your bow, and if you did not roam about the world like a brilliant sun, leading a huge army whose trampling feet caused the globe of the earth to tremble, then all the moral laws governing the Varnas and Ashramas created by the Lord himself would be broken by the rogues and rascals. If you give up all thought of the world's situation, unrighteousness would flourish, for men who hanker only after money would be unopposed. Such miscreants would attack, and the world would perish. In spite of all this, I ask you, O valiant king, the purpose for which you have come here. Whatever it may be, we shall carry it out without reservation. And that is the end of the 21st chapter of the Srimad Bhagavatam, Canto 3, the Status Quo, a conversation between Manu and Kardama. This is what you call a purifying spiritual morning activity. And I encourage all of you to engage in it whether alone or accompanied by others, as many days of your life as you can. Have an awesome day.